thanks again for doing this. So I've got a couple of questions, but I wanted to hear about your story in, in your own words. Okay. Um, well, I guess I can introduce myself. So my name is Billy Seibert, and I'm 60 years old. And I'm born and raised in Pocatello, Idaho. Um, this area, you know, Idaho, northern Utah, um, Wyoming, Montana, it's pretty big snowmobile country. We call it sledding. Uh, it's pretty big sledding country. There's, you know, we, we have pretty good winter sometimes with the exception of this year. But uh, I've snowmobiled, uh, you know, started early on in life, five years old. Um, I became an avid, what we call backcountry rider about 13 years ago. Backcountry riding as opposed to trail riding, you know, trail riding and looking at sites and that type of thing uh, is what a lot of people here do. But backcountry riders, we we go off the, the, the path, if you will. We go off the trail. So we... You know, we find a location where there's a good backcountry riding, steep terrain, a lot of good tree riding. We call that boondocking. Um, and that's the type of riding that I like to do. So where were you when, um, when the incident happened, when you, when you, um, you know, when the avalanche fell on you? Yeah, what, what happened? Where were you and what happened with specific reference to the avalanche and what happened? Yeah. Okay, so we were at a place called Hoback, Wyoming. Um, it's a, it, it, the Hoback, so a lot of people go to Alpine, Wyoming, which is just a short distance from Hoback. Hoback, Wyoming area is not a well-known area. Only, you know, the, the locals know about it and few people really know about this area. There's no trail, no groomed trail. It's basically a hiking trail that gets you back there. You you ride a ridge, you know, you ride up this hiking trail, so to speak, and you ride a ridge line and you drop back into some bowls in in the whole back Wyoming area. Okay. Uh, this this particular day it was uh, January twentieth, so that would have been that was Saturday. Um, six of us, uh, six of us that typically, well, five of us ride together frequently. There's others that ride with us, and they weren't there that day. But the the five of us ride together, you know, and we rode together for years. Um, this particular day, we had a new rider with us, somebody I'd never met before. His name is Donnie, and he was with us. So we were taking a guy up in this area uh, that had never rode, never ridden back country before. On this day, we so we we, we rode back into the bowls. Um, this has been a really horrible winter for riding. Um, the avalanche um, forecast tells us that uh, things are prone to slide. Um, and the reason for this is because the temperature has been getting warm and then the snow melts on top and then it gets cold and it freezes and then it snows on top of that. And so it, it builds up lay, weak layers of snow, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah. So anyways, we're, we're, we're heading back there and it's about a, a 12 mile ride, I suppose, um, maybe a little bit less into where you can drop off this ridge into these bowls. Once you drop off the ridge into these bowls, you've got mountains on both sides of you. You know, so you've got a, a mountain on the, it'd be a westerly facing mountain that's, you know, full of trees. And then the easterly facing mountains with, with not much tree life at all on it. 
you know, just big wide open mountains with cornices on top. And them are the dangerous ones. Um, first of all, they're facing east, which is prone to a- avalanches, and they become windblown. So, so they're prone to avalanches. You you shouldn't even ride them, and especially when the snowpack is what it is this time of year. We got back in there, um, the six of us, and we were riding around down in the bowl, you know, just playing around a little bit in the powder, and. I made the decision to, you know, shoot up this easterly facing slope. I rode up this slope um, and I got about halfway up there and it just didn't feel right. Didn't, didn't, maybe more intuition than anything. I can't say I felt anything in the snow itself, but it just didn't feel good. I turned out and came back down. So, you know, we were riding around again, you know, playing in the, in the field again, in the, in the meadow. And, Kenny, Kim, and myself all took off back up for this same slope. Uh, Kenny was in lead. Kim was just right behind him, and then I was uh, further behind Kim. And we all took up off, took up this slope. Um, we were heading up towards the very top of the slope. Now, Kim and Kenny at that point were pretty, pretty side by side or pretty close together, and I was probably maybe 20, 30 yards behind them. Um, I felt the mountain move. Okay, you you can you can kind of feel it. It just you lose momentum with your sled, and that's because uh, the snow in an avalanche, the snow is actually sliding out from underneath you. I don't know if that makes any sense. Picture picture standing on a throw rug and running as fast as you can, and that carpet. You know, you're not moving forward. The carpet's moving underneath you. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So that's kind of what it felt like, and and I knew I knew knew the, the mountain was sliding, so I tried to turn out of it, and the idea is to get the sled turned completely parallel with the way the with, with the direction the mountain's sliding. I didn't get turned. I didn't get turned completely parallel. I was about a little more than ninety degrees to the mountain when I looked to my left, and I seen a wall of snow coming for me. Within seconds, I had no time whatsoever to pull my airbag. An airbag is a device. It's an avalanche device. It's basically a backpack or a vest that you strap on yourself, and you have a handle on your chest. And if you pull the handle really hard, an air canister inside the vest will release its contents into a big bag or a balloon type thing that will blow out the top of your backpack. And that and and that bag, that inflated bag, is supposed to keep you close to the surface of the slide, okay? Because it's much less dense than this. Well, I didn't have time to pull that bag. The wall of snow hit me. I was knocked off my sled. Um, at this at this point, I was. The next thing I remember. Uh, was a wall of snow to my back, and I was kind of sitting on my butt with my legs in front of me, pushing me down the mountain. In awareness, in avalanche awareness training, they they teach you when you're in this situation, swim. You swim because it's almost the snow is uh, almost almost a, a thick liquid state. And so you can move at this point. So you're taught to swim. Just keep flapping your arms and try to try to stay uh, as close to the surface as you can possibly stay 
So that's what I was trying to do. Then at some point, my left leg was caught on the ground or on the snow, or and it was twisted back behind me. So now I was almost doing the splits as I'm being pushed. So I remember looking to my left and seeing Kenny and Kim at that point parallel with the snow and riding it out. So, so them two actually rode the avalanche down. They made it, and I didn't. The next thing that happened is it went black and I was completely buried in the snow and the snow stopped moving. <laughs> so, okay. wh- so why why did they why did they race up the mountain in the first place? Cuz you already had felt a bit worried about that mountain. Well, so that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. I'll, I'll tell you it it's a risk. It's always a risk when you're when you're riding backcountry and you're shooting up these mountains. It, it's always going to be a risk. But it's ninety percent of the time that you're riding these things. There's there's no you know you, you 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 ride up the mountain and you get as high as you can and you turn out and you make it and everything works out good. Ninety nine percent of the time, but but that risk is always there. Okay, it's like jumping out of a parachute. Your your chute's probably going to open, um, but the potential for it not opening is still there. But we still jump out of the plane, right, for the thrill of it. So you know, getting back to to why we, you know, to answer your question, why do we go up it when we knew the risk was there? That that's a great question. You know, we should not have been. Uh, the the avalanche forecast told us that. Even though we didn't actually look at the forecast, we knew it was bad. So we knew it was risky, and it was really, really foolish on our parts to ride that slope. Um, but we did it anyways. Wow! As you were as you were telling me about it, I was imagining you literally covered in the snow. I, I would be so scared. So once you were in the snow, completely covered, and what what were your thoughts? What were you What were you doing? What was happening once you were in the snow and you couldn't see anything anymore? Okay. Well, I, I ha- okay. I have to first tell you that I mentioned when the snow's sliding down the mountain, it's almost like a liquid state. You can move in it. You can. That's your opportunity to try to get above because what happens when the snow stops, it sets up like concrete. Okay, and 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 the reason for this is as the snow is sliding down the mountain, there's it builds up an energy. There's an energy. Okay, so the snow starts melting. As it's sliding, there's an, the energy creates a heat, and it, it becomes almost going towards a liquid state, okay? It becomes wet and, 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 and melts somewhat. But once that snow stops, it instantaneously at that moment freezes. So now it goes from being this soft, fluffy, powdery snow to rocky, solid uh, icy type thing so the snow rolls down it rolls up into big balls it you know and then it stops and it freezes so you got big chunks of icy snow does if that makes any sense to you so i'm under this snow now but you cannot move you cannot move you are entombed in the almost like concrete the only thing that I could move was my right wrist. I could bend just a little bit, and I could move the fingers on that right hand. That's it. Nothing, absolutely nothing else would move. I know. I'm also aware that when, and it felt like I was much deeper than I was, because the pressure was just the weight of the snow was just incredible. Uh, 
pressure from all sides. So I, based on this amount, on the amount of pressure that I felt, I thought I was much deeper than I was. And I knew I was in deep trouble. I felt like I was, it turned out I was only three feet under, which which is a lot. Don't get me wrong, but it felt much deeper. I thought I was sinking maybe 10 feet, something like that. I could hear on my radio because we all wear uh, two-way radios. The girls, the two wives were um, down below. So they watched the whole thing happen. Kenny and Kim just rode out of the avalanche. So I could hear the girls scream at the guys that I was under. I went under. I went and they, they were screaming, he's under, he's under, he's buried, he's buried. Getting back to what I was thinking, again, with the amount of pressure on me, I felt like I was much deeper than I was and I knew I was in trouble. I also know that you, the, the, you know, I didn't feel like anything was broken or you know, I, there was any kind of trauma but you're, you're you're now suffocating, right? There's no there's very little oxygen down there. Believe it or not, the snow is <clears throat> porous, and it does hold a lot of oxygen. The big problem with being buried in an avalanche is that there's no way to exhaust the carbon dioxide that we're breathing out. So most people don't die from lack of oxygen in an avalanche; they die from carbon dioxide poisoning because what we're we're trying to, you know rebreathe in what we're breathing out so my right fingers that could move i was just trying to drill a hole and i had to point out also that when you're in a, when you're buried under snow you don't you have no idea which direction you're buried i don't i didn't know if i was on my back and i was trying to dig up or if i was on my belly and i'm trying to dig down as it turned out i was actually on my side but i was digging down so i was getting nowhere but i didn't know that at the time but that's the absolute only thing that I could do. The only thing I could do is keep trying to drill with my fingers and hope that I was going up and I was going to create a vent for the carbon dioxide to exit and oxygen to get in and try to remain as calm as possible. So to, you know, not, not deplete my oxygen and, and not, not, not breathe any harder than I had to. So, so my only thing I could do is try to stay as calm as possible and, and dig as dig in hopes that my hand, I was digging up. How were you actually feeling though? Like, were you freaked out or were you, I know you said you tried to stay calm, but what were your actual feelings in there and thoughts? I I didn't think they were going to get me alive. I thought there's no possible way they're they're going to get up to where I was. First of all, I didn't. Re- I thought I was still much higher on the mountain, but I had. I had actually, from the time the wall of snow hit me and pushed me down to the bottom to where I stopped, actually moved me 140 feet. And I, and I know this because I carry GPS on me. So later on, I was able to go back to my GPS and identify the altitude exactly when the snow hit me, and identify the altitude from when I stopped sliding. So it was it was 140 feet that I was pushed down the mountain and then buried. So as far as thoughts go, I did not believe they were going to get me alive. I knew 100% for sure that I was going to die under that snow. Once you, once you know you're going to die and you're not going to get back, a million thoughts go through your head. And it's just amazing to me how quick and how many thoughts can just go through your head. I mean, I'm thinking, first of all, first and foremost, I felt horrible to my wife. I just wanted to hug her. You know, 
I wanted to give her a hug and tell her that I loved her. And I wanted to tell her that I'm sorry. And I wanted, you know, I, I, I knew that my wife is going to be planning a funeral this week. And I knew, and we own our own business. And I was thinking about how is she going to, how is she going to continue running the business without me? And what's she going to do? Is she going to sell the business? Is she going to, you know, what is she going to do to survive? And I just felt horrible for the way I knew that she, for, for, I felt horrible for her future. And I felt horrible for the way she was feeling right now because she knows I'm under this snow. And I felt horrible for the guys I was riding with because I knew that, I knew that there was complete chaos and panic and going on above trying to find me. And I knew that they weren't going to be able to get me out and that they were going to blame themselves for the rest of their lives for not being able to get me out of that mess I was in. So that, that, that's the thoughts that were going through my head. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Continue. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You're going to ask something. I was just going to say, so, um, BYU is a it's a, it's a, it's a university that's owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. I don't know if you've heard Correct. of the church. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so we we obviously were we're a religious school, and as I read the stories, I, I don't know if it was a comment from your wife, but I think she mentioned something about God helping you or, or something like that. I just wanted the the one question I thought of. What role do you think God played in this, if any? So uh, I, I don't know. So there was an energy. There was an outside force. There was some kind of something that can't, something untangible that got me out of there. Um, I don't know that I can put a name on it. Okay, that's just my, my personal belief. I don't know that I can put an actual name call it God in, in that sense, but I can say that there was something far greater than ourselves helping us at that, that day. That, that I can promise you. Now, I believe that uh, definitely after reading it. I read that you, read, you rode your sled out an hour later, um, so you obviously had no injuries or anything like that. Um, so d tell, me, tell me about once they dug you out and you took your first breath, Tell me about from there onwards, thoughts, feelings, and uh, yeah, and what happened onwards from there. Um, okay, well, before I go into that, if we have time, because there's a, a very important message here that I think needs to get out. If, yep. if you don't mind, you do me talking about this is your their, their this is your story. Anything you want me to put on the radio about this, I'm putting it in for the way you want it. So you go for it. Oh, okay, so so in backcountry riding. There's equipment that we have on us. There's beacons, and I've already talked a lot of. I've already talked about the Avalanche backpack, the Avi pack, um, but we also carry beacons, and that's a device that, at the beginning of the ride, everybody tur turns to transmit. At any point, if somebody's buried in the Avalanche, the other riders can turn their beacon from transmit to search. Now they can use their beacon to find my beacon, if that makes any sense to you. And we had these beacons on. We also have what's called, uh, you know, a satellite communicator. In case of an emergency, you know, you flip on this satellite communicator, you hit SOS, it immediately sends your GPS coordinates out to search and rescue. And then at that point, you can communicate with search and rescue via text 
and uh, text messaging through this inReach uh, communicator. So we had all that. So I, I want to go into the mistakes that were made because I think that's really important here. Okay. okay. First of all, the biggest mistake was being on a slope that we all knew was a dangerous slope. We should not have even hit that slope. Okay, that's that's mistake number one. The next mistake that happened is uh, the in-reach communicator. It's a subscription. So you buy the device and then you buy a subscription to it so that it stays active. Well, uh, we didn't test the inReach this year, and the subscription had actually expired. And and the reason why this is important for us to get out there is because I can bet you that this is this has happened before, or it, the potential for it happening is there, and a lot of people don't even think about it. But our subscription on our communicator um, had expired because it, it's an auto pay. And it, it, the card number that was attached to that subscription um, had been compromised that last April. So we had to cancel that card and get a new card. And, of course, when it went to auto pay, um, that card was, had been canceled. And so the subscription was no good. So that communicator was at zero value. It's just a little two-inch by maybe one and a half inch piece of plastic that was worthless because the subscription had expired. Once the avalanche happened and I was buried, my wife got out the satellite communicator and she hit the SOS button to try to, you know, send a, a distress call to search and rescue, but it didn't work. Okay. So that, that, that device was worthless. Once she realized that there was something wrong and and the message was not going out, then she rode up to where I was. Now, I was completely buried. My sled was completely buried. The only thing sticking out of the snow was just the tip of my ski. By the time the two girls, Tina and Jennifer, got up to me, Kenny and Kim had already found my ski tip sticking out. Okay, at this point, Kenny got out his beacon and turned it from transmit to search mode as well as Kim, Kim did the same thing. The problem, and here's an, here's mistake number three. Okay. The new guy I mentioned, Donnie, that was with us. He also had a beacon on him. Okay. But we failed to train him before we left of what to do with his beacon, okay? He never turned his to, to search. His was still in transmit mode. So while Kenny is out with got his beacon in search mode looking for me, it's picking up two different signals, okay? It's picking up my signal that's buried under the snow, and it's picking up Donnie's signal at the same time. So realistically, it was telling his beacon was telling him I was directly underneath my snowmobile. So they started digging up my sled and it took them, you know, quite a bit of time to get me out. So going and and I gotta add that based on the time that Jennifer tried to send the first distress call, and 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 I gotta say also that when she realized that the in reach was not 
working, she tried to call 911. Now, they, now there's no signal up there, but we still have a time stamp of when they tried to call 911. Both Jennifer and Tina tried to call 911. And that was it. Well, so that was at 12:45 p.m. on January 20th that they tried to call 911. They didn't try to call 911 until after I was under the snow for 2 minutes. So that puts my time going under the snow at 12:43. And this is important because it's going to help us figure out how long I was buried. Anyways, Kenny's Beacon is telling them that I'm under my sled. It took quite a bit of time to dig my sled out. Once they got my sled completely dug out and I was not under it, panic set in for them pretty badly because now 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 they're all thinking that I'm dead for sure too because I just been under way too long, okay? At that moment in time, Donnie, who had the beacon that was still in transmit mode, walked down the mountain further to try to get a cell signal, right? To call to call 911 himself. Well, at that point, now Kenny's beacon gave him a new signal and it pointed about five feet up from where they unburied my, my sled. And it was a good, strong signal now because now we got an accurate signal, right? Because the other one's not trying to trying to mess up the, the uh, signal because it walked out of range. So now they got a new signal. So now they're digging again. Once again, they're digging and they're digging like crazy. And, and again, I got to say that it, it's not like soft, fluffy snow. It's hard, rocky ice almost. Well, they dug and they dug and they dug until they found my backpack. And once they found my backpack, they knew what they knew they had to get my head out to get air to me so based on the orientation of my backpack they knew where to start digging to uncover my face first so that's what they did they got my face undug and they were clearing my clearing the snow away from my mouth to try to get oxygen to me once they got my face all cleared out they got my helmet off me they got my head sock off me they were scraping snow that was kind of blocking you know blocking my my ability to breathe and, and now I'm telling you this part of the story. I, w I was buried, so I, I only know what I'm being told at this point, right? So now I'm using their words. Um, I was my face was completely white. My lips were blue. Um, I, Kenny thought I was dead. Um, everybody thought I was dead. But as soon as he got that uncovered, my face uncovered, I took a breath. I took a breath, right? So I'm alive. Um, I don't have any any memory of any of this part of it, but because um, I was completely unconscious, they continued unburying my body until they got me buried and was able to, uh, you know, make sure that I was still breathing. Donnie was back up the hill by this point. Well, they were all up, by this point. They're all up. They're all just trying to unbury me. But Donnie was holding a finger up and telling me, don't move, don't move, just blink your eyes if you understand what I'm saying. And I was blinking my eyes, and he was, you know, so they got me to the point where once they felt comfortable, there wasn't nothing broken, and I could be moved, they got me sat up. And they're still unburying the rest of my body. And Donnie's holding up one finger and having me follow his finger with my eyes. And so they, they, they knew I was at least alert enough to 
to listen to commands or uh, I was understanding what they were telling me. Um, I had a horrible, horrible headache. Um, that's due to the carbon dioxide poisoning. I'm, I still don't remember any of this, but with the exception of the headache. And when, when I first came to, I just, I asked for my wife because she was kind of behind me. And I was looking at Kenny and Donnie and they just looked horrified. Just uh, both of them are just breaking down, crying. Um, I think that's a moment in time where the happiness of finding me and getting me out and me sitting there breathing and all the fear and panic kind of collided. You know, it was just this, just this unbelievable amount of emotion. And I could see that. And, uh, of course, I'm grateful as can be to be alive, but I'm I'm dealing with a terrible headache. I'm soaking wet now. Now I start freezing, so they're kind of stripping my wet clothes off me and putting on fresh, warm clothing, which you know every backcountry rider carries with them. And they got me, you know, to trying to get me warm. It took it so so it took about an hour for my head to clear enough, and for my you know, for me to be co cognitive enough to, to where I could even talk or stand up. I tried to stand up many times, but just kept falling right back down. Um, I was close to death. There's no doubt. Another, another, oh gosh, one minute. There's no way I could have made it another minute. I don't believe. So it took about an hour for me to, to get cognitive enough to where I could really stand up. And we decided that, you know, I didn't need a search and rescue i didn't need to bring in the helicopter to get me out of there and i figured that i could ride out so so that's what we did if we we all rode out um one of the machines that was with that was there broke down trying to get up to me kim's sled broke down so when we left uh we tried to you know we hooked up and we were going to tow it out but they but but a tow out is a time consuming thing and they didn't want to waste time getting getting me out of there, getting all of us out of there. So we just left the sled and Kim rode doubles with Tina and we rode out of there. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So the one thing that, that makes sense now after reading your story is how they got your signal where your sled was, but it was actually the signal of the other man. Um, it was a combination of my signal and his. Okay, and it so was, it, it threw it, them off, yeah. It did mixed it, up. It, yeah, it was it was reading directly in in the in between my my body under the snow and Donnie was standing just about the same distance on the opposite side of my sled, so it was reading about right in the middle of us. Ah. So that's a that's a huge mistake on our part, and I really really want to get that out there. And and if you read my story that I put on Facebook. In my words, I mentioned how everything, the rescue went absolutely perfect. Well, I wrote that story right after, you know, the, the following day after the avalanche, before I'd even heard Kenny and Tina's story, you know, it, before we all got together and really dissected this whole thing out. So I mentioned in the story that everything went perfect when in reality it didn't go perfect. I mean, it, it it's hard to hard to say it didn't go perfect because I'm alive today, right? But it really didn't go perfectly. And so it's important that we talk about the mistakes that were made. And that was a mistake that we made as a, as a, as a backcountry 
team, we made a mistake. That could have made the difference. But thank, thankfully, you know, I'm alive and, and it all worked out. And we we really want to just get the message out there how important it is to have the safety equipment, but also how important it is to have good training. We're all trained, but not as well as we could have been. But I can promise you that we did make a mistake by not not showing Donnie how and what needed to be done with with the with 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 his beacon. And, and this is not Donnie's fault at all. This is our fault. This is my fault because in the parking lot before we left, we didn't teach Donnie how to use his beacon, and he had no idea. So, you know, thank God Donnie was there because um, you know with any less any less amount of people there to dig would have made the difference so it would have been a life or death dis- difference so so had donnie not been there to to dig along with tina and kim and kenny and my wife i wouldn't have made it incredible so i'm great i'm grateful for the five of them they did everything to the best of their ability and and it worked and it got me out yeah but there's things incredible. that i could have gotten out of there sooner if if there would have been better training yeah. if that makes sense and it's important for me to get that out there i'm gonna i'll i'll make that a focus of this this news package that i create the fact that you you want that you want your mistakes to be out there so people can learn from it so if they're in a similar situation they've checked off every possible thing that they can do to give themselves a better chance than you had you just got you were blessed you got lucky god helped you um your your friends and your wife just Everything worked out, but it it won't always be like that for everybody. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I, I, let's make sure in the story that we get it out there that having the equipment is great. It's perfect, but you also have to have the avalanche training. In other words, you have to go to training. You know, there's a lot of different avalanche training, but you have to get trained to use that equipment and then you also have to practice with that equipment because i can tell you that um none of us have ever been caught actually caught we've seen avalanches before we've rode through them but we've never been caught in one and so you couple that first time in a situation like that with the panic that comes along with it and the training is what gives you the practice and the the fundamental skills to actually put that training into practice. 